Before we get into the substance of it, um, we will be coming back to this, but I just want to hear from you in your own words why you like watching car racing, if you can tell me. Um, why do I like watching car racing? Well, I have to confess, for the, probably the first 30 years of my life, I thought it's the most boring thing I could possibly watch. That's Jeremy Grimshaw, who's been named by Reuters as one of the world's most influential scientific minds. Hello and welcome to The Recommended Dose with me, Ray Moynihan, funded by Cochrane Australia and co-published with the BMJ. Jeremy Grimshaw is a professor at the University of Ottawa in Canada and he's got a global reputation for helping translate scientific evidence into genuine changes that improve human health. Oh, and he does like car racing and music festivals. But before we get to them, how did he first get interested in science? I I went to medical school, but I went to medical school because um, I wanted to be a family doctor. I saw I didn't come from a medical family, um, but I saw in my uh, community sort of basically the potential uh, importance of the role of the family doc and how they could support individuals. And that's what I wanted to do. So I went to medical school. I was not particularly sort of very strong academic uh, in medical school. My exposure to research in medical school was lab-based stuff, which was pretty boring to me and yeah, really did not get me very excited. Uh, but when I went to do my family practice training, I was fortunate enough to have to organize a, a national conference for all the family practice trainees in the UK. And I could start to basically uh, invite people who are heroes or who are as intrigued by the work they're doing. Uh, And so, for example, we invited Peter Townsend, who's a professor of social policy in Bristol, and really one of the founders of looking at health inequalities. Uh, We invited Muir Gray, who at that time was doing facilitation in Oxford, uh, a GP facilitation in Oxford. And I met these very inspirational, generous, warm characters who were doing research that seemed to have direct relevance that could um, basically improve the lives of individuals and and, and communities uh, directly through what they were doing. And that's what excited me. And after that conference, I talked to my mentors uh, and they advised me to go off and do a PhD. And that led me really into my career. But if you'd have asked me at the start of medical school, did I anticipate I'd be doing research in 30 years time, I'd have laughed at you. It's it's amazing, isn't it, the way our lives take twists and turns, very unexpected, lots of chance involved. Absolutely. Um, you're, You're best known, I think, for your work trying to implement scientific evidence into practice, trying to use all the evidence, the good evidence that's generated about what works and what doesn't in healthcare, and really sort of implement that to make changes to the way doctors and others work, to make changes to the way health systems work. Is, is that a fair description of, of implementation science? Um- it is. I mean, a lot of your other speakers uh, uh, or guests you've had on the recommended dose are very much focusing upon, you know, basically generating the best summaries of evidence to inform decisions by patients or healthcare professionals or managers or policymakers. I guess where I, I think that's incredibly important, and I do do uh, systematic reviews, and as you know, I've been involved in things like the Cochrane Collaboration and the Campbell Collaboration for many years. But for me, that generation of summaries of evidence is just a starting point, because 
one of the things is that those evidence summaries are necessary but insufficient if we want to make sure that patients get the best care uh, that's available to them. So when we look at repeated studies from all around the world, what we find is there's a gap between what the evidence says we should be trying to provide our patients and what we actually can achieve in the real world in the healthcare systems that we work within. Uh, And so we're probably not maximizing the health of our patients based upon the knowledge that we uh, that we currently have. And my research is very much how do we bridge that gap? What are the ways in which we can support uh, healthcare professionals, patients, and healthcare systems to better use knowledge to improve patient outcomes? We'll talk in a moment about a you know a real world example of that in 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 the area of stroke. But but before we do, I think this interest of yours has led you to look very much at often what stops the implementation of change you know what what are the barriers to to change and and what might help implement change i mean do you have in your mind based on that evidence you know what some of the most or you know the most important barriers are what what's stopping us implementing uh, change according to the best evidence so one of the ways that we conceive of this area is that we're interested in trying to change the behaviours of doctors, patients, pharmacists, nurses who are working in complex, rather chaotic surroundings. And when we think about it that way, it allows us to draw upon a lot of social and organisational science uh, to think about what are the barriers or enablers to the behaviours we're interested in. So one of the models that we use a lot of is um, it's a model called the Theoretical Domain Framework, which basically is a summary of what psychology says drives our behaviours and has identified 14 major things. And so amongst those things are things that people would not be surprised about. So if we don't have the knowledge, then we're unlikely to to do something. If we don't have the skills, we're unlikely to do something. If we don't think it's my professional role, then I'm unlikely to do this. Uh, And so using this model allows us to really get a good picture about what the barriers are. I think if you went back 20 years ago, uh, the assumption would be that the barrier is knowledge, that somehow if we can just give clinicians more knowledge, then they would practice perfectly. And what we find time and time again in different countries, settings, uh, professional groups is professionals often have the knowledge, but there's a much wider set of barriers in, in, their, in their environment which actually prevents them from acting upon the knowledge. Uh, sometimes it may just be the chaos of the clinical surroundings or the, the lack of time given the kind of the other calls on their time. Sometimes it could be about um, peer pressure or uh, what's acceptable within their social and professional roles. Um, sometimes it will be um, just that uh, they don't get good feedback. So, you know, they, they think they're doing a good job, but actually if you measured their performance uh, uh, closely, you'd notice that, or you'd be able to tell them that they're not doing as well as they can. As human beings, we often overestimate um, how good we are. Uh, you know, no one likes to think uh, that they are a worse than average driver, but 50% of us are worse than average drivers. Um mm-hmm. Likewise, yeah, so we always overestimate and think our performance is slightly better than it was because it's how human beings get through the day. I like that. That's a, that's a good thought for us all to reflect on. <laughs> we all think we're a bit better than we really are. But give me a, this real-world example where I think you've been involved directly in work to improve the sort of care that people who have had a stroke get. Tell me a little about that. 
Yeah, I've been very fortunate to work with Professor Sandy Middleton, who's a professor of stroke nursing at the Australian Catholic University in Sydney. Um, and I started working with Sandy shortly after she completed her PhD when she was interested to find out whether if we could improve nursing care in stroke units, would that lead to better patient outcomes? So as a bit of background, um, one of the first Cochrane views demonstrated that stroke units are probably the most powerful intervention we have to improve outcome for people who have strokes. And by stroke units, we mean people should be admitted to basically a hospital ward which is dedicated to stroke and has nurses and physios and occupational therapists who are entirely focused on stroke. And we know that if we just put people into those environments with that professional support, they get a significant improvement in their outcome. There were some signals, though, that um, there were some aspects of nursing care which were not optimal in stroke units and seemed to be related to a bad outcome. So there's some evidence that if a patient who had a stroke um, had a spike in their blood sugar, then they had a worse outcome. If they had a spike in their temperature, they had a worse outcome. And so Sandy was very interested to ask if we could basically support nurses so that she they they managed uh, you know, sugar control temperature control swallowing assessment better would we get additional benefit to um to the care that uh, to the benefit the patients get from being in stroke units so um I worked with Sandy, who conducted a, a randomised controlled trial in New South Wales, where she randomised 19 stroke units to get a an intervention where we basically got nurses to um, come together as a team to problem solve, to try and develop you know concrete action plans about how to overcome uh, the barriers to to these aspects of care. And what we were able to show is, um, yeah, at the end of the trial, patients who were treated in the stroke unit who got this additional sort of implementation work uh, were 16% more likely to be alive or to have um, uh, or not have major disability at three months. Uh, There's very little change in mortality and death rates uh, within the trial, most of this was about people who probably would get home rather than having to go into an assisted facility because they were managed in units where nurses were uh, looking after uh, these aspects of care. The, when we followed that up, we followed these patients up over five years and we could actually demonstrate that patients were more likely to be uh, alive within five years if, again, they had been treated in uh, these stroke units where we had optimised the nursing care. A great example of of the use of evidence being translated into practice in a clever way and people's lives being improved. You know, it's funny that that we're talking about stroke because I I remember filming in in a stroke unit that you describe in Canada and it was just so impressive. I I think we filmed it at a dance class that was part of the... You know, part of the the process in the in the stroke unit was to have to have a, a I think a weekly dance session. Oh, those crazy Canadians! <laughs> but 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 more than dance, it was it was very much an example where a whole lot of different professionals were working together, and 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 really did seem to be an example of you know this common herd rhetoric about patient centred care. That it really did see seem to be a, you know quite a rare example where where teamwork among all the different health professionals was actually a reality, and people were benefiting. 
Um, absolutely. I mean, just to follow up on the Sandy Middleton story, um, uh, basically this sort of innovation was then picked up by the, uh, I think, the New South Wales Innovation Agency. It was rolled out across New South Wales, so all the stroke units, all the citizens in New South Wales benefited from this. And if anything, the implementation was even better as this was rolled out um, into these settings. And it's now being rolled out across, I think, 300 hospitals in 13 countries in Europe. So it is, it, again, it's one of those areas where not only did Sandy uh, uh, um, um, demonstrate this benefit, she's also managed to then make sure this becomes part and parcel of just routine healthcare in New South Wales, increasingly Australia and around the world. And I guess for us all listening to you talking, one of the take-homes here is this, if we do suffer a stroke, if our one of our loved ones suffers a stroke, then these sort of changes mean that we're going to end up with, with better care after that stroke, imp- you know, improving the lives to follow that. Absolutely. What it also shows is that little things in clinical care matter. You know, my guess would be that before Sandy's work, people wouldn't get too worried if there's a, you know, someone with a, a stroke, uh, their temperature went up. But Sandy's work clearly shows that that is important. And if we look after that, then basically our loved ones, our patients will you know, more, be more likely to get home, more likely to survive as a result of that. So it's that kind of detailed understanding of the clinical care and making sure that patients get the right care. Uh, that, I mean, that's what drives me. That's what gets me out of bed in the morning. You're listening to The Recommended Dose with me, Ray Moynihan, and this week we're talking with Professor Jeremy Grimshaw. A fellow of the Royal Society of Edinburgh, Jeremy's also president of the board of a sister organisation to Cochrane. That's the Campbell Collaboration, which summarises evidence about social policy. And he's also been deeply involved with Cochrane for a long time, including 10 years as director of Cochrane Canada. I wasn't at the first Cochrane meeting, but I got involved um, towards the end of 1994, um, and it just became part and parcel about you know my ethos how i see the world how i see research uh needing to be done um and it's also a wonderful intellectual space so as a relatively junior researcher being able to be in rooms with people like um, ian chalmers andy oxman who were remarkably generous to uh young uh, uh young scientists and young clinicians um and it's also a remarkable social gathering. I have friends and colleagues now around the world um, who I yeah, have over years got to know incredibly well. I'm here visiting colleagues at, the Austra- at Cochrane Australia and through Cochrane I have incredibly deep friendships uh, uh, that, that has also kept me there. So it, it was very much driven by initially that kind of intellectual aha moment about what a systematic review is but then is you kind of got sucked in and it became a kind of intellectually challenging family space that you wanted to be in. Let's move from from Cochrane to the Campbell collaboration because this is where uh, your, in recent years, a lot of your energy is going now, the Campbell collaboration. Before we talk about what it does, who was Campbell? I mean, we've talked on this program about who Archie Cochrane was, quite an extraordinary figure that Ian Chalmers talked about uh, in a recent uh, podcast. But but who was Campbell? So, so Donald Campbell like Archie Cochran, was an extraordinary scientist in his field. Um, He basically was working in the sort of social evaluation space in the US, which meant that he did research that was particularly relevant to education, uh, to social welfare, uh, to business and organizational scientists. And he was, I think, first and foremost, a, a methodological thinker. 
his influence really cannot be uh, underestimated. Uh, when Campbell started, um, you know, the thing that I got excited about was I was in the room with generations of his graduate students who are now senior professors, world leaders in their field, and many of them in the same way in Healthy and Chalmers encourage a whole, a whole generation, many of the leading thinkers in, uh, in that social and economic policy space really were sort of encouraged and supported and intellectually challenged by, by Campbell and his ideas. So for those who don't know, briefly, what's the basic difference between the Cochrane collaboration and the Campbell collaboration? It's largely about the content area. So Cochrane focuses on systematic reviews of health. Now, within that, they also look at public health. And so often when they're looking at public health, they may start to look at sort of you know, social or economic welfare. But Campbell's, uh, the Campbell collaboration is basically trying to do systematic reviews uh, of social and economic policies. So the areas that we particularly focus on are um, crime and justice, uh, education, international development, social welfare. And more recently, we have a, a new uh, education and disability group, a um, business and management group, uh, a knowledge translation implementation group. And we have emerging groups, particularly saying focused on things like food security. So there's always some overlap between health and social welfare, but largely Campbell does the social welfare stuff and Cochrane does the health stuff. And where there is overlap, we try and work together. So in other words, if a government was going to introduce a new policy in terms of how it runs its prison system or how it runs its education system or how it runs its social security system, uh, am I right in thinking that the Campbell collaboration is generating good quality evidence about what policies and programs might work and which ones might not work? Um, absolutely. That's a great summary, Ray. And so let, let's talk about an example to make this real, uh, Jeremy, if we can. I think there's been some work done on a, on, on a program that relates to criminal justice called the Scared Straight Programs, and, and they've had some interesting findings about programs for young offenders. Can you, can you tell us about those? Sure. Um, scared straight programs are uh, programs that will take juvenile offenders and take them into prison and meet uh, basically hardened criminals who are serving life sentences for uh, for, for whatever offence. And the, the idea behind this is that basically these hardened criminals will basically sort of try and scare these kids into going on the, the straight and narrow. Uh, and actually in the UK, there was a, a TV program. This was made entertainment um, so that every week basically kids would be taken into into program into uh, uh, jails and they'd be filmed with these life uh, uh, these, these life prisoners screaming at these kids and they started crying and uh, yeah and, and got very emotional upset it was really horrible uh, reality television um, when Campbell was being founded uh, or established, one of the first reviews that uh, it did, led by someone called Anthony Petrosino, is actually look to see, well, is there any evidence that these programs lead to uh, reduced criminal activity amongst uh, uh, these kids as they grow up? And what, what did the evidence show? Well, Anthony was able to find 12 randomized controlled trials, which I think is the first thing that's surprising. I don't think I would have estimated there were 12 trials for this. But what it showed clearly is this did harm. These kids were more likely to reoffend if they went through these programs and if they didn't. I'm interested in your reflections on on what the limits uh, to evidence informed policy change are. 
if you if you do see any limits um evidence is only one input into policy decisions and often it's not particularly the sort of most dominant one that it will be political views ideology or um you know uh, possibly you know, what's possible will, will drive kind of the uh, uh the political agenda um but I, I, I mean, I think that if we, we look at governments around the world, if you compare where we are to uh, maybe 20, 30 years ago, I think there's a much stronger um, emphasis on on evidence as being one of the inputs to this. So maybe 20 years ago, um, it would be, we'll get our favorite expert in who will largely reinforce our own priors or biases in terms of what we think we should do. Uh, it's clearly not... A global phenomenon, but in many jurisdictions now, people are you know, more formally incorporating evidence as one of the inputs into the, the political uh, decision-making process. So I think we can expect and demand evidence to be used uh, uh, more often. And if we don't like the, the results of, of, of policy formulations, we need to hold our um, our politicians to account. I think I'm right in saying that uh, the, the Swedish government has, has talked about introducing prostate cancer screening <laughs> in Sweden. Um, and given the evidence suggesting that this could cause great harm, this could be a very uh, non-evidence-based decision uh, that may well provoke uh, a response from citizens as well. Uh, I would hope so. I mean, I I, I think prostate screening is, uh, as a man now in that sort of age group is something I would um, avoid like the plague. Even if I'm found at a later stage to have prostate cancer, I think that the risk of harm is is is, is potentially very great. Uh, we need to respect that. I, I do think that sort of screening is one of the areas where we actually have really good guidelines about when screening tests are appropriate or inappropriate, and we can then look for the evidence to see whether they meet those guidelines. And from my perspective, but I think from many other uh, you know, national guideline bodies' perspective, prostate screening is um, would not be uh, anything I would choose to implement at a, implement at a population level. Seeing as we're talking about your decisions, Jeremy, are you, I, I, th- I think I'm right in saying that you had your own some version of a health scare a few years ago. I mean, is that something you, you know, you'd want to talk about? And, and what, what did you learn from that? Um, yes, if you want. I, I had a heart sack now almost 10 years ago, I think. Um, I was uh, in Norway at the time. Um, so I was doing some extreme health services research, comparing sort of what care might have been in the UK or Canada to Norway. Uh, the Norwegian system was exceptional. Um, you know, I was looked after remarkably well. Um, and they were very embarrassed because I was a foreigner and they had to actually sort of charge me, in fact, charge my insurance company for the care I got. They were very embarrassed to have to do that. Um, I, one of the things about this, I mean, clearly I come from a medical background. I, you know, it was a funny presentation, so it wasn't clear to me that I was having a heart attack when I was having a heart attack. But once the diagnosis was made, to some extent, I kind of basically got picked up. I got a stent put into um, into my coronary artery. So, yeah, that was evidence-based, but I was, no way was that anything that it, I was uh, involved in the decision-making process for that. Um, and I have to confess that even though I'm very committed to evidence, I'm also very interested in kind of what the healthcare professionals looking after me think I should do. Uh, thankfully, all the healthcare professionals who are looking after me in, in Norway and then in Canada um, actually were recommending the treatments that I knew from the research evidence were, were entirely appropriate for me. So 
So uh, um, it was one of those areas where if if they had been recommending things that I didn't feel comfortable with, that would have been more problematic. But yeah, to some extent, I was very happy to take their judgment as, as healthcare professionals. What it has meant, though, is um, I'm a very happy complier. So uh, if you have a heart attack, um, if you take four preventive drugs after the heart attack, you reduce your risk of death at one year by a relative risk of of, of, 8%, of 80%, but for an absolute risk of about 6% reduction. Um, and what we do know from the research evidence around the world is about 50% of patients after 12 months are not taking these medication. I am a very happy complier. I take the medications because uh, they are one of the things that I think has probably kept me healthy since then. Um, and so, if you like, the research evidence on Compliance and the fact that if you're a complier, you're more likely to get additional benefit is has been part of what's driven my personal behaviours. So this is another example of of, of evidence informing uh, medical decisions in in your own life. Absolutely. Looking forward into the future a little bit here, Jeremy. You you wrote in Nature that health data has never been more plentiful. From the millions of research studies published every year to data from personal genome sequencing, electronic health records and wearable devices. Yet sifting through this information to make more evidence-based decisions is becoming increasingly difficult for experts, you know, not to mention the lay public. So, I mean, how do you feel when you look at the future? Is all this information that we're getting from all these sources going to help us or, or, or are we going to have too much information and, and how much is too much? What are your thoughts? So my sense is that this information should help us. But we need to be. Uh, we need to think about how we curate this information, and also how we look at it critically. So, yeah, you know, one of the impulses for that paper uh, with Julian Elliott, who I think has been one of your previous guests, uh, were a recognition that we have increasing, uh, increasing, um, uh, increasingly we have big data. So these are data that are sort of stripped from electronic health records or from you know, people's patterns of where they travel on Google, etc. And that is a very rich source of information. However, it's also, it's very limited in what it can tell us. And, and what we need to do is we need to find a way of curating evidence where we're actually taking you know, the best knowledge or information we get out from the big data. We're allying that with what we're getting from more rigorous research uh, to try and get closer to the truth that will help citizens make decisions. What I worry about is if we end up with a siloed uh, uh, evidence community where the big data people are at one end of the, in one corner, the researchers are in another corner, the electronic health record people are in another corner, that's where I think we'll get into real problems because there'll be just a lot of noise and do, are these groups shouting over each other if we could actually come together and say how do we work together how can we honestly both recognize the limit of what our, our personal source of information can can bring uh, and then how do we bring the different so- types of information together um, uh, to as i said try and get to a uh, hopefully a more nuanced uh, um, approximation of the, of of reality Let's move to the close of this conversation by talking a, a little bit about you. And, and as we as we learned at the beginning, you have become in recent years something of a petrol head, if you don't mind me using that uh, phrase, enjoying watching car racing. Remind us again what, what, what where that enjoyment comes from. 
Um, it, uh, so it's, it's, it's this Grand Prix Formula One. I don't get particularly excited by other car racing. Um, but I think, yeah, the thing that I enjoy most is that you have teams that are pushing at the absolute edge of, um, of development. Uh, you have just amazing drivers so when i started i was you know i, I had a favorite driver and didn't particularly you know like the other drivers around there we still i still have a personal favorite at the moment but you come to respect just how remarkable these drivers are what athletes they are and also what mental stamina they've got and the final thing is that the you know, the car races or the grand prix are about you know two hours or two hours maximum um and it actually is like a chess game that unfolds over two hours so you know watching that and having enough of an understanding about what's happening in the background uh, that you know something that uh, you know someone pits in lap 15 for these tires and that's going to mean this is going to happen on lap 50 um, it actually makes it quite gripping there are some very boring races but there's often uh, sunday mornings are often kind of good times to sit in front of the television in canada with a cup of coffee and basically uh, uh, allow yourself just to to be in the car with the drivers well, speaking of cars, if you were a guest host on, on a show called Carpool Karaoke, and I have to admit I'd never heard of this program until I, I was preparing for this interview, I mean, but if you were a guest host on Carpool Karaoke, who, who would you have as your guest? Um, so, so in general, I like electronic kind of experimental drone music, which I don't think would go down particularly well within a car. But as you're asking that, the, the person who springs to mind is Bonnie Prince Billy. So Bonnie Prince Billy is an American sort of, um, I guess, his alt country singer, but is just an amazing artist who uh, um, I have followed and loved for um, yeah probably over 20 years. One of his most famous songs is a song called um, I See a Darkness, and Johnny Cash did an absolute amazing version of this in uh, American Man, uh, uh, American Unchained, uh, Volume 3. Um, I would recommend all of your listeners go and listen to Johnny Cash, and then go back from Johnny Cash to Bonnie Prince Billy, and I'm sure that... Um, it's not the most uplifting of, of songs, although it's not, it's not that pessimistic, but uh, uh, they'll enjoy that. That is a great tip. And we should share with the listeners that you are a great music lover too, Jeremy. Um, and you particularly like going to music festivals too. Is that right? Um, I've spent a lot of the last 10 years trying to organise my professional life so I can also take in a concert or a music festival at the same time. And, and do you have any any music festivals anywhere in the world that are particular favourites? Um, I, I certainly do. Um, there is an amazing festival called Big Ears, which happens in Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, at the end of March every year. And it's run by uh, basically a promoter who promotes throughout the, the, uh, the, 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 the South, uh, Southern America. But this is his hometown, and he basically selects artists that mean something special to him and he has everything from experimental 20th century um uh, 20th century composers so philip glass has been a um an artist in residence there to to brutal um metal so faust the german kraut rock band from the 70s played there um Sun-O, who are a death metal band played there uh to um sax or to jazz uh, kamazi washington has, uh, has played there to Kind of left field, um, left field music and electronic stuff. I saw Anthony and the Johnsons there at the first concert, which was at the first uh, um, first uh, uh, meeting, which was just breathtaking. Well, well, normally we ask for literary recommendations, but I think those music tips 
are a great way to go out. Um, Jeremy Grimshaw, thank you for your time. Thanks a lot, Ray. Great to speak to you. You've been listening to a conversation with Professor Jeremy Grimshaw. And if you're after that Johnny Cash track that Jeremy mentioned, it's on the album American 3, Solitary Man. And that was the last recommended dose for this season. Thanks to Touch Music for the clear singer piece we're about to hear, and a very big thank you to the indefatigable Shauna Hurley and her colleagues at Cochrane Australia for production. Thanks too to the BMJ for co-publishing this season and to the sound guru Jan Mutz for his exemplary editing. Thanks also to Chris Scanlon from Visualism for all the great show artwork throughout the series. And thanks to all the inspiring guests. But the final thank you is to all of you listening. It's been a particular privilege and an absolute pleasure for me to be able to share these conversations with you. And we're closing now with a recommendation from Jeremy from Scottish composer Claire Singer with a track called Ferragio.